This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Appreciations and Criticisms of the Works of Charles Dickens by G. K. Chesterton Section 5 Chapter 2 Sketches by Bows Part 2 They must, I think, be read in the light of this useful explosion. In some psychological sense he had really been wronged, but he had only become conscious of his wrongs as his wrongs had been gradually righted. Similarly, it has often been found that a man who can patiently endure penal servitude through a judicial blunder will nevertheless, when once his cause is well asserted, quarrel about the amount of compensation or complain of small slights in his professional existence. These are the marks of the first literary action of Dickens. It has in it all the peculiar hardness of youth, a hardness which in those who have in any way been unfairly treated reaches even to impudence. It is a terrible thing for any man to find out that his elders are wrong. And this almost unkindly courage of youth must partly be held responsible for the smartness of Dickens, that almost offensive smartness which in these earlier books of his sometimes irritates us like the showy jibes in the tall talk of a schoolboy. These first pages bear witness both to the energy of his genius and also to its unenlightenment. He seems more ignorant and more cocksure than so great a man should be. Dickens was never stupid, but he was sometimes silly, and he is occasionally silly here. All this must be said to prepare the more fastidious modern for these papers, if he has never read them before. But when all this has been said, there remains in them exactly what always remains in Dickens when you have taken away everything that can be taken away by the most fastidious modern who ever dissected his grandmother. There remains that primum mobile of which all the mystics have spoken, energy, the power to create. I will not call it the will to live, for that is a priggish phrase of German professors. Even German professors, I suppose, have the will to live. But Dickens had exactly what German professors have not. He had the power to live. And indeed it is most valuable to have these early specimens of the Dickens work, if only because they are specimens of his spirit apart from his matured intelligence. It is well to be able to realize that contact with the Dickens world is almost like a physical contact. It is like stepping suddenly into the hot smells of a greenhouse, or into the bleak smell of the sea. We know that we are there. Let anyone read, for instance, one of the foolish but amusing farces in the Dickens' first volume. Let him read, for instance, such a story as that of Horatio Sparkins, or that of The Tugses at Ramsgate. He will not find very much of that verbal felicity or fantastic irony that Dickens afterward developed. The incidents are upon the plain lines of the stock comedy of the day. Sharpers who entrap simpletons, spinsters who angle for husbands, youths who try to look Byronic and only look foolish. Yet there is something in these stories which there is not in the ordinary stock comedies of that day, 
an indefinable flavour of emphasis and richness, a hint as of infinity of fun. Doubtless, for instance, a million comic writers of that epoch had made game of the dark, romantic young man who pretended to abysses of philosophy and despair. And it is not easy to say exactly why we feel that the few metaphysical remarks of Mr. Horatio Sparkins are in some way really much funnier than any of those old stock jokes. It is, in a certain quality of deep enjoyment in the writer, as well as the reader, as if the few words written had been dipped in dark nonsense and were, as it were, reeking with derision. Because if effect be the result of cause, and cause be the precursor of effect, said Mr. Horatio Sparkins, I apprehend that you are wrong. Nobody can get at the real secret of sentences like that, sentences which were afterwards strewed with reckless liberality over the conversation of Dick Swiveller, or Mr. Mantellini, Sim Tappertite, or Mr. Pecksniff. Though the joke seems almost superficial, one has only to read it a certain number of times to see that it is most subtle. The joke does not lie in Mr. Sparkins merely using long words, any more than the joke lies merely in Mr. Swiveller drinking, or in Mr. Mantellini deceiving his wife. It is something in the arrangement of the words, something in the last inspired turn of absurdity given to a sentence. In spite of everything, Horatio Sparkins is funny. We cannot tell why he is funny. When we know why he is funny, we shall know why Dickens is great. Standing as we do, here upon the threshold, as it were, of the works of Dickens, it may be well perhaps to state this truth as being, after all, the most important one. This first work had, as I have said, the faults of first work and the special faults that arose from its author's accidental history. He was deprived of education, and therefore was in some ways uneducated. He was confronted with the folly and failure of his natural superiors and guardians, and therefore it was in some ways pert and insolent. Nevertheless, the main fact about the work is worth stating here for any reader who should follow the chronological order and read the sketches by Boz before embarking on the stormy and splendid sea of Pickwick. For the sea of Pickwick, though splendid, does make some people seasick. The great point to be emphasized at such an initiation is this, that people, especially refined people, are not to judge of Dickens by what they would call the coarseness or commonplaceness of his subject. It is quite true that his jokes are often on the same subjects as the jokes in halfpenny comic paper, only they happen to be good jokes. He does make jokes about drunkenness, jokes about mothers-in-law, jokes about hen-pecked husbands, jokes, which is much more really unpardonable, about spinsters, jokes about physical cowardice, jokes about fatness, jokes about sitting down on one's hat. He does make fun of all these things, and the reason is not very far to seek. He makes fun of all these things, because all these things, or nearly all of them, are really very funny. But a large number of those who might otherwise read and enjoy Dickens are undoubtedly put off, as the phrase goes, by the fact that he seems to be echoing a poor kind of claptrap 
in his choice of incidents and images. Partly, of course, he suffers from the very fact of his success. His play with these topics was so good that everyone else has played with them increasingly since. He may indeed have copied the old jokes, but he certainly renewed them. For instance, Ali Sloper was certainly copied from Wilkins Micawber. To this day you may see, in the front page of that fine periodical, the bald head and the high shirt collar that betray the high original from which Ali Sloper is derived. But exactly because Sloper was stolen from Micawber, for that very reason, the new generation feels as if Micawber were stolen from Sloper. Many modern readers feel as if Dickens were copying the comic papers, whereas in truth the comic papers are still copying Dickens. Dickens showed himself to be an original man by always accepting old and established topics. There is no clearer sign of the absence of originality among modern poets than their disposition to find new themes. Really original poets write poems about the spring. They are always fresh, just as the spring is always fresh. Men wholly without originality write poems about torture or new religions of some perversion of obscenity hoping the mere sting of the subject may speak for them. But we do not sufficiently realize that what is true of the classic ode is also true of the classic joke. A true poet writes about the spring being beautiful because, after a thousand springs, the spring really is beautiful. In the same way, the true humorist writes about a man sitting down on his hat because the act of sitting down on one's hat, however often, and however admirably performed, really is extremely funny. We must not dismiss a new poet because his poem is called to a skylark, nor must we dismiss a humorist because his new farce is called My Mother-in-Law. He may really have splendid and inspiring things to say upon an eternal problem. The whole question is whether he has. Now this is exactly where Dickens and the possible mistake about Dickens both come in. Numbers of sensitive ladies, numbers of simple aesthetes, have had vague shrinking from that element in Dickens which begins vaguely in the Tuggses at Ramsgate and culminates in Pickwick. They have a vague shrinking from the mere subject matter, from the mere fact that so much of the fun is about drinking or fighting or falling down or eloping with old ladies. It is to these that the first appeal must be made upon the threshold of Dickens' criticism. Let them really read the thing, and really see whether the humor is the gross and half-witted jeering which they imagine it to be. It is exactly here that the whole genius of Dickens is concerned. His subjects are indeed stock subjects, like the skylark of Shelley or the autumn of Keats. But all the more, because they are stock subjects, the reader realizes what a magician is at work. The notion of a clumsy fellow who falls off his horse is indeed a stock and stale subject. But Mr. Winkle is not a stock and stale subject, nor is his horse a stock and stale subject. 
It is as immortal as the horses of Achilles. The notion of a fat old gentleman, proud of his legs, might easily be vulgar, but Mr. Pickwick, proud of his legs, is not vulgar. Somehow, we feel, they were legs to be proud of. And it is exactly this that we must look for in these sketches. We must not leap to any cheap fancy that they are low farces. Rather, we must see that they are not low farces, and see that nobody but Dickens could have prevented them from being so. The end of chapter 2 End of section 5